Tonight, on This Is Vinyl Tap, one of the biggest pop stars of the early 60s goes into the studio with some of the best musicians in the rock and jazz worlds and creates a relatively quiet masterpiece that calls attention to the troubled times of the early 60s and without any song resembling the pop smashes he's known for. Tonight, it's Sam Cooke's Night Beat. This is a mean old world to live in all by yourself This is a mean old world In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. We're going way back. We're going way, way back. I didn't think that we could get this far back and stay true to our principles for covering albums, but we're going to 1963, and we're going to talk about one of the most compelling individuals in American popular music, to ever have lived, but something even more important is gonna happen tonight. We are going to make peace with RCA Victor for just a short time. As you know, they invented the single, which caused all the mischief in music, (laughs) but we're going to be, we're gonna be on a truth tonight because we're gonna talk about one of their great artists. Uh, We're gonna cover the 10th album by Sam Cooke. Gentlemen, this is an enormous challenge. We are going to have to try to do a complete podcast without starting every sentence with, he is such an incredible singer. (laughs) (laughs) Should we just get that out of the way first, Doug? Yeah, Yeah, I think everybody needs to have their just ooze about how great he is singing at the very beginning so we can talk about other things. In my opinion the greatest voice of the 20th century in in popular music bar none i bet you don't think anybody in the 21st century has beat him either <laughs> yeah i don't know i'd have to think about that but what about yeah, jeff probably not. <laughs> <laughs> i have a hard time not listening to him whenever a song comes on that song that sam cook is singing i'm immediately drawn to it just on the strength of his voice. I mean, he could sing the theme song to the Mickey Mouse Club and I'd still be, you know, enthralled. Well, that's it's it's un it's undeniable. I I don't know if I'm where Tony is, but I'm trying I tried to spend a whole two weeks trying to think of his peers as far as singing. I thought about Otis Redding. I thought about Wilson Pickett. Um, and I, w- I'm not comfortable saying any of these guys are better. Uh, the thing yeah. that Sam cook, he can hear, have that crystal clear, pure voice. And then he can get it grungy. He can do yeah. both. And on this album, he does do both. So we're pretty excited about that. I didn't well, mention the name of the album. The 1963 album by Sam cook is soul beat. And the re- no, reason I'm night, so surprised. Night, no, night no. beat. Night beat. <laughs> it says Mr. Soul on the cover, and it also says night beat. So if you're <laughs> dyslexic, you get several uh, names for this album. Uh, the name is Night Beat. And the reason I was surprised we could go so far back is this is a complete album. You have to listen to the whole thing in its entirety. And that was just extremely rare back then. 
can can we also get something out in the open that I think we need to talk about before you bring your blazing horns out with your inconsistency thing? Is <laughs> this is a very bluesy album, and it and I love it. So, uh, well, I don't get to use the siren if you confess. Well, I, th- I think I <laughs> Thank think you for uh, reminding me to get that ready. Well, I think the reason I think the reason why, and it's something we can talk about later, is kind of the influences of of Sam Cooke's influences in doing this album. Were while they were blues musicians, they were a different. They weren't like Delta blues or Chicago blues. They were right. they were they were a different kind of blues. Very very much a little bit more polished, you know, of the kind of the ilk of of Nat Cole, uh, in in a lot of ways, um, but. Uh, you know, um, for people who aren't personal friends with Nat Cole, that would be Nat King Cole. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, the biggest influence on him was Charles Brown, and I think we can talk about that. That we'll talk about him later. But um, you know, he was he was that kind of musician. So I think that is likely why I don't have an issue with this, is because it's it's uh, it's significantly smoother and more melodic to me than a lot of other blues stuff is. Not an out. I I don't listen to this and think, oh god, the blues like I do with some other yeah. stuff. You know, you compare it like Doug. You mentioned Otis Redding and and Wilson Pickett. Well, I mean, the and even Sam Cooke back then was just doing these massive arrangements uh, with you know horns, backup singers, occasionally strings, especially you know Sam Cooke. I'm thinking about songs like "You Send Me" and and um, you know another Saturday night. This album's kind of a departure from that. Um, you know, there's no strings, there's no horns, there's no backup singers. It's, it's just a very straightforward album. Uh, it was recorded in two sessions over three days, and it's uh, much more subdued than any of his other stuff. Um, and so this album has actually some spiritual tunes on it. It's got some some gospel tunes on it, and it's got some blues. It's kind of like he's... Um, getting away from his pop hits and a little bit away from just the kind of the soul singer thing and getting much more into the uh, melancholy nuanced sort of uh, delivery that you're not really, you don't usually associate with them. That's very important. And that, that leads me to a very important public service announcement. Sam Cooke had 29 gigantic hits. He was a hit machine. And when you think of Sam Cooke, you're going to think of those, the the chain gang, um, Cupid, Cupid, all those songs (laughs) that you like the first time you hear them. So if you're one of those people hoping that you can find that on this album, you really won't. You'll find the fantastic voice. You'll find good music, but you're not going to find those songs that were created for radio and created for big play. And that's why I absolutely yeah. love this album. There's something else important like about this album. I felt like I was listening to a jazz album that was recorded yeah. at uh, the Village Vanguard. It was like a session deal played in at the Village Vanguard or one of those deals. It's like these musicians came together. They're all super talented and they put together a session and uh, I know it took a, I know it took more than one session to get it together, but it sure does remind me of a jazz album a lot more than a, a pop well, album. So here's here's something interesting in terms of historical reference to this album. This album was, I think, recorded in February of '63, late February of '63, maybe. I, I can't remember, but um, he had done a live show at a place called the Harlem Square Club, which I think I think is in Miami. And it was to a primarily black audience and, and, and it was recorded. And, and when he would do these shows, cause he was a crossover artist and he'd play to mixed, mixed crowds. He'd play to primarily white crowds, but he'd also do just primarily black audiences. And when he would do these, it was a different kind of show. It was grittier. Uh, he was showing a side of himself that was, that he would, that he didn't show a lot. Um, the label didn't, wouldn't release the live album cause they didn't think it, it would have, it had commercial appeal. Um, so this this nightbeat was recorded on the or on at the same time that he had done this live recording at the Miami um I mean at the Harlem Square Club. 
So I think that uh, I think think in terms of a kind of a if you're going to call it a political statement, this was his way of saying, you know, I, I want to break free from all of that orchestrated string stuff and kind of do something that's a little closer to my own heart. Um, yeah. If he hadn't been if he hadn't been killed a year later, there probably would have been significantly more albums like this from him. I think so. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard one of the songs off that live recording. I didn't even. I was not even able to tell it was Sam Cooke. I, I said, who is this? This guy's great. This guy has a great voice. But it was so different than the pop sounds that I was used to from Sam Cooke. I did not recognize him in that live album. But uh, we're a little off our agenda, and I'm <laughs> going to make us more off the agenda because I want to go to JM real fast and get him to clue us in on this extraordinary band that played at this recording session out in L.A. First of all, the album was produced by this kind of these Italian guys. They went by the name of uh, Hugo and Luigi. I think it's Hugo Peretti and Luigi Creatori was who it was. And they had been producing uh, a lot of hits back in uh, or a lot of albums in the L.A. area at that time. But probably the most significant thing about this is it has an early version of the wrecking crew or members of the wrecking crew uh, specifically um the most probably the most notable player from the wrecking crew is the drummer hal blaine chances are if you own any cd you could What's a probably CD, look <laughs> if you own any sort of recorded media you have a a song that Hal Blaine has played on. He has he's played on and the Wrecking Crew themselves have just played on countless albums. They played with Frank Sinatra, they played with the Monkees, they played with the Beach Boys. Uh, I think they they played with the Carpenters. That that group of uh, players just went on to just play on tons and tons of albums. And some of the and notable players also are like Glenn Campbell. He was a member of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, Carol Kay. She was the one of the first most successful female bases ever wasn't um, leon russell there for a little while leon russell was in it and so was a guy named larry netchel he went on to actually play with bread for a long time so and he became the pianist for uh, uh paul simon and uh, simon and garfunkel just a just a, a little fill in for people the wrecking crew is the name of the house musicians at this L.A. studio. Uh, mm. Also, if you are interested in things like that, it is very much worth your time to check out a movie on Netflix or Amazon, whichever one, called The Wrecking Crew, and you will see the incredible number of musicians who are Sinatra, who are backed up by this band, yeah. and they did a lot more than back up these guys. They put the hooks into the music. They were I would say they were writers on a lot of these songs. Yeah. Well, yeah. And let's not let's not uh, forget about someone who was not, I don't believe, part of the Wrecking Crew, but is on this album who was f as almost as fundamental to the sound of it as as Sam Cooke is, and that's a yeah. sixteen-year-old Billy Preston. <laughs> Can you believe he was sixteen years old when he played? How on does that album? happen? I mean, this was his yeah. choice, which yeah. was unheard of for most musicians, let alone a black musician in 1963, to be able to pick yeah. the band that they're going to have playing behind them. Um, but his, Billy Preston, this album's not the same without him on it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He you makes know, got, songs. Did, did Billy it. Preston ever go on to do anything else of note? Tony? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, he's actually one of, I think, three or four people known as the fifth Beatle because he is, uh, <laughs> am I wrong? There's at least four or five fifth Beatles. Well, I know I know um, Billy Preston yeah. and Eric Clapton. I can't think of the other ones. Uh, I think George Martin was called George the fifth Beatle. Their, their, manager, um, uh, their manager was called the fifth Beatle. Brian Epstein was Brian the fifth Epstein, Beatle, wasn't yeah. Uh, yeah. but he, he played, he played piano organ on, on the let it be album. Right. Yeah. And he's and, all, and he's he all was, over that movie. He was the only one happy while they were making that. That's album. true. That's true. <laughs> and it's, it's a joy. It's really a joy to watch him play in that film. It is. Films, Cause he's, ha he's having a blast. Um, yeah. and, uh, and he definitely adds a lot to the sound of that album as well. Before we get much further, uh, Tony, 
a little background on Sam Cooke before we dive into this record. Uh, he was born in uh, born in 1931 in Mississippi, and his 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 father was a was a minister, a preacher, and he moved the family up to a uh, um, large family. I can't re- I can't remember how many brothers and sisters he had, but um, there was eight. Yeah, that and sounds he was about like right. The sixth of eight. Anyway, when he was around two, the family moved up to Chicago because the father thought they'd have a better the Chicago area <clears throat> father thought they'd have a better uh, chance of making it up north than they did in Mississippi. Um, he was in Chicago, and not just Chicago, but a particular neighborhood called Brown a uh, Bronzeville. Ah, and okay. He went to what I am going to call the most extraordinary high school in the United States of America, Wendell Phillips Academy High School. And you're going to say, oh, big deal, man. Why is that such a, why is that so cool? I'm going to read you a short list from the huge list of notable alumni. Gwendolyn Brooks, first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize. Jody Christian, jazz musician. Uh, Marla Gibbs, <laughs> Florence from the Jeffersons. And Jam, maybe you can help me with this. This is a piano player. His name is uh, Herbie Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, amazing, really? Yeah. I'm not through. <laughs> Then we have Milt Hilton, the Dean wow. of American Bass. Yeah. Ray Nance, jazz trumpeter. This other person called Dinah Washington. Oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. John wow. H. Johnson. Really? The first African American on the Forbes Richest 400 list and the creator, founder of Ebony and Jet magazines. Mm-hmm. There's one other guy here. Y'all, y'all might be able to help me with this one. Uh, let's see. Nat King Cole. <laughs> um, he also went there. Nat Cole to his friends. Nat Cole to his buddies. Now, um, that is a little tiny piece of the list. Let me tell you, I removed all of the uh, sports guys who are all all Americans, um, <laughs> rookies of the year, all all professional sports guys of every kind of thing under the sun. This wow. is an extraordinary neighborhood and an extraordinary um, high school. Hopefully, there's a documentary filmmaker out there in our audience that is going to jump on this and make one of the best documentary films about what in the world was going on in Bronzeville and in this high school to make so many extraordinary people pop up. Uh, and uh, his, his, he comes from a musical family and his, his brothers and sisters would sing um, at his dad's uh, recitals. And, um, and, and eventually uh, he ended up joining a very monster gospel group um, at the time called the Soul Stirrers. A ship that's tossed and driven, oh Lord, and an angry sea, and oh you know when the storms of life keep on raging. Their lead singer. By a guy by the name of R.H. Harris, who was 34 when he left, was replaced by a 17-year-old Sam Cooke. The, the, the interesting thing about that is Sam Cooke brought this, this sex appeal to the band that made a lot of ministers, when they would go perform, very uncomfortable because you had girls, you know, <laughs> oohing and on over this gospel band. And, uh, and it was all because of his voice and his looks. Um, he he decided around 1950. Well, we've struggled with ourselves. It is <laughs> absolutely. Just don't let us come to their towns. <laughs> That's not for the same reasons, but um, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so he he decided around 1957 to go. He wanted to do go cross or crossover and get into popular music because he was. I mean, he's honest about it. He said there was more money in it. Uh, so his his first his first single he recorded as a secular artist was a song called "Lovable," which is a remake of um, a gospel song he'd recorded with a soulster. It's called "Wonderful." Um, he recorded it while he was still in the band. He was he wasn't going to give up on that because that was a huge no no for gospel artists to go out and do secular music because gospel artists played God's music, secular mm. artists did the devil's music. And in fact, he he recorded it under the name I believe Dale Cook. Um, that was but, his brother's name, I believe. Yeah, but it, was, it on his brother. It was <laughs> obvious from anybody who was a Soulsters fan that this was this was Sam Cook singing. You know, the next single he put out, um, he just put out a Sam Cook, and the rest is sort of history. You know, he was one of the first gospel artists to break that mold to go into the secular world and and be successful and not really turn all those people off. I mean, initially they were upset, but I think they came around. He signed one of the largest recording contracts with RCA Victor for a black artist to that date. And uh, the only artist that I think was signed for more money than him was Elvis. He was the second highest selling artist on RCA after Elvis. He gained his independence. Uh, he, he started his own publishing company, his own record company. He, he, he got a contract with RCA, which was kind of, well, not kind of, it was unusual at the time where he would record stuff and they would be the distributor for the first, I think, five years of the album. And then after that, it went back to him. Ownership went back really? to him. This is, this is amazing. You know, not only yeah. just, again, for an artist at that time, but for a black artist at that time. Um, and and he used, you know, he used that um, the clout, the new clout, found clout he had from all these monster hits he was making to really try to break down uh, the racial barriers for people. And his thought was with this music, with this music label that he had, he was going to give other people a chance. So, you know, he had, uh, and he he had did. like Bobby, like I said, Billy Preston, Bobby Womack, he gave a chance to, um, wow. he was the first, he was the first, um, I believe the first black artist to play the Copa Copa Cabana in New that's York. Right. Um, yeah, that's right. He was the first black artist to refuse to play a segregated show. This was in Norfolk, Virginia. The Norfolk um, uh, arena acquiesced and did it. Now he tried. He tried it again later in another place further south, and they said no way. And so he just didn't play. But he, you know, so he was constantly pushing those barriers for for the benefit of of musicians, not just him, but the musicians coming after him. And he and he made a huge huge mark um for people doing that but um as i mentioned he was later um shot out uh uh i guess in a hotel motel lobby in 1964 um unfortunately wearing a sock and a blazer and that was it now to the now to the album itself track one nobody knows the trouble i've seen sorrow nobody Trouble that I've seen, glory, hallelujah. <clears throat> to me, this sounds very different than any other version of Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Well, yeah, and yeah, I'm that's absolutely exactly what I think. With it. That yeah. that's the thing. I mean, this is a you know, this is a traditional spiritual song. I think I think it's it was um, officially published sometime in the late 1800s. If there's a better example of Sam Cooke making a song his own, yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is yeah. this is he a fine it. example of that. Well, the thing, I, I, it starts off melancholy. Did y'all notice that? It starts off with yeah. a yeah. string bass, just and then it you know, ends with barely hope. audible. Yeah, ends with this nice hope. And it's, it, you know, it's normally a song about a plea of desperation. Yeah, and then he just turns yeah. into this upbeat. You know, upbeat song, great drum, bass interplay, um, really interesting take on this song and, a, a, and another great piano part played by uh randy johnson it's such a strange album because as as someone said uh, sam i don't did we mention how good his voice is you know if you have a <laughs> use agreement with uh, microsoft and he read it you would listen to it all night long and love it well, but the other thing that's interesting is if you took him off of this record I think I would still listen to it just to I hear that agree. band backing them up. They're so the, good. The band is hot, definitely. Band definitely. Is hot. Yeah. But but what's what's really what what's really uh, 
and I know we talked earlier about the difference between this and his other stuff, but what's really, this kind of starts off the album with this is a really stark arrangement. And there's very few songs that aren't stark, starkly arranged yeah. on this album. That doesn't mean the musicianship behind it isn't great, because it is, but it really is a showcase for that voice. I mean, that he's able to do things um, that maybe he's done in other songs, but they don't stand out quite the way that they do on this album. And I Case think it's point. harder for a musician to play in this kind of band than one where they might get some cover for anything uninteresting they're doing. It's right. it's yeah. just beautiful because you're exactly right. It's like someone got in there with the uh, weed eater and cleared everything out around Sam Cooke so you could hear his voice. But well, at you know, the same time, you hear those guys playing and they're just doing what is exactly appropriate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got this thing they call it's famously known as the Sam Cooke yodel. I, I, I was watching a documentary about him that I'll recommend later. And they talked about how when he took over for um, for uh, for lead singer of the Soul Stirrers, the, the guy he took over for had a had a very unique and high voice. And, and the for early part of his career, Sam Cooke would try to emulate that guy and he couldn't quite believe it or not, couldn't quite sustain those high notes. So his voice would naturally drift down and do that. And it just oh, became wow. a trademark after that. Yep. Next is uh, Lost and Looking. I'm lost and I'm looking for my baby. This one just it's absolutely wonderful. blows me away. It's an amazing song. And you want to talk yeah, about yeah. Stark and just his vocals being... Uh, <laughs> yeah. It just shows his voice, his ability to just sound so sad and lonely. When he's singing these songs, you know, about, you know, most of the, you hear his hit singles and everything, they're all happy and, you know, or you send me and it's just this sweet yeah. voice. And now you're hearing this, he just sounds so sad and so lonely. And, and no Bobby and socks so and poodle skirts on this album. No, no. Uh, Peter Garalnik in his book said uh, when he's talking about this song said that this showed off every single one of Sam Cooke's characteristic vocal yeah. um, effects, and uh, uh, just the, the what he's able to do with his voice just is showcased on this song. And it's interesting because it's just what a bass and a cymbal throughout the entire song. And, it's not even an interesting bass line. It's just a thumping. It's just a yeah. steady one. You know, one it's almost an acapella version one, of this song, yeah. Mean old world. This is a Sam Cooke number he composed this is himself. All by 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 all by yourself. A and art arts and repertoire. Those guys used to go out and find music for their singers to sing. This is where it started transitioning to going out and finding artists because this is where artists started producing and playing their own music. So here we go with Sam Cooke, who wrote a bunch of hits, a bunch of fantastic hits. If he had done nothing else but write songs, he would be famous for his hits. Uh, Here's uh, Mean Old World, a Sam Cooke song. He he recorded this earlier with the Soul Stirrers, and it's it's interesting because the version, if you if you pull it up and listen to it, is uh, it's almost doo wop in in its presentation. And the lyrics, of course, are very religious. This is not. This is very secular. And now you know we turn this kind of uh, song about about you need God because the world's so mean into the song about you know this lonely guy yearning for love. Um, but boy, uh, not to, again, talk about his voice, but he hits a falsetto a couple of times in this song that just is enough to send shivers down your spine. It's incredible. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Please don't drive me away. Number four. Baby, please don't you drive me away. One more thing, honey. Um, okay. This, you know. I think, okay, but let's, just to take a pause off on uh, Sam Cooke's voice, this one is really features Preston's organ playing. He's The whole time he's playing the song, he's playing with the organ stops. It's amazing. And this, this is a 16-year-old kid who knows his way around a Hammond organ better than probably, you know, just well, about anybody in the world. 
and and it's interesting because the Hammond organ, you know, got its start and and sort of in black churches um, as an instrument because they couldn't afford pipe organs, and then it ended up transitioning into gospel uh, music, mm-hmm. hence kind of the feel this whole album has with it, and then into jazz a little bit. And then it ended up getting into rhythm and blues stuff. This is the first song on the album that was either of four that were either recorded or written by Charles Brown. Um, that's why I think it's a big influence, um, and I wanted to talk about him a bit. So he was a he was a classically trained pianist, um, but he was a blues blues pianist uh, in the 40s and the 50s, and he did this kind of slow paced, soft tone stuff. It's very similar. He was in a trio, very similar to the King Cole trio which had Nat King Cole in it. In fact, Nat King, uh, the I think the guitarist for the King Cole trio was a guitarist for the band that Charles Brown was in. They're related in some way. Anyway, he was really influential to a lot of these guys coming out of uh, uh, coming up at this time. Um, the two sort of forebearers of soul music, Ray Charles and Sam Cooke, um, both point to this guy as being a giant influence. And and there's some you know speculation that while not every song on this album is is a Charles Brown song, that Sam Cooke meant it in a way to be kind of an homage to him because at the time he had kind of fallen out of favor. He 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 wasn't you know he wasn't making many hits because he, unlike Nat King Cole who could cross over and do more pop stuff, uh, Charles Brown was a little grittier and never quite made it over into that that way. So this is like I said is one of the first of four songs that are related to him on this album. And number five, I lost everything. Keep on making me blue. Oh, here's that Billy Preston organ again. <laughs> yeah, another great, yeah. And I also like um, the guitar part. I'm assuming it was by uh, Barney Kessel, that um, Wrecking Crew guy, and he also played jazz stuff but there's he he's known for doing alternate versions of chords and and doing chord substitutions and you can kind of hear that on this on this song where he he just kind of yeah he um, played with uh charlie bird sonny rollins art tatum jeez can't um can't you just close your eyes when the song's on and see like a smoke either the smoke-filled studio or even better a smoke-filled club late at night you know, yeah. with the, I mean, it's just, it evokes I that. anything else. Yeah. yeah. I really yeah. thought I was at the Village Vanguard. <laughs> yeah. And uh, having the cheapest cocktail on the menu, listening to the piano player five feet away. Get yourself another fool, number six. Now I know the rules. Get yourself another fool. Yeah, this uh, this is another Charles Brown uh, song that he recorded. He had he co-wrote "Please Don't Drive Me Away," but he recorded this one originally, and and it's influenced by that take. This also uh, not to keep beating the Billy Preston drum, but this also has some pretty you know amazing yep. gospel inspired organ going on, and then the guitar solo in the middle of it is pretty pretty far out as well. <laughs> Next is a Willie Dixon number, Little Red Rooster. The dogs begin to bark. The howls begin to howl. A hoochie coochie music number. How about that, fellas? So, Doug, this falls into your uh, your theory about singles, because this was the first song on the second side, and this was the single off the album. Right. Um, really? It re- yeah, it reached uh, it reached number seven on the Billboard R&B set, set, or chart, number eleven on the Hot 100 pop chart, and number two on the Cashbox R&B charts. What's interesting about this is a this song is the bluesiest song on this album. It yep. sounds so unlike anything Sam Cooke ever released as a single. How in the world? I mean, this guy was magic. How in the world does a guy put a song out that sounds this unlike anything he's done, and it goes to number it goes to number eleven on the Billboard Hot 100? I mean, is that hoochie coochie magic? I guess so. Uh, yeah, the cool thing about this is uh, Billy Preston making all those animal sounds on it. You know, he <laughs> yeah. sounds like a he's got dogs and hounds, dogs he's and roosters and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So this was this was originally, I guess, recorded by Howlin' Wolf 
who had a minor hit with it in 61. Um, and then when Cook did it, he added a verse to it. You know, the verse that talks about the keep keeps all the hens fighting in line thing. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 yeah. That, that he yeah. wrote that. And what's the other amazing thing about this is the, the subject matter of this song. It's amazing. This was ever, ever allowed to be played on the radio. <laughs> I agree with you. It's, it's like, you know, all Willie Dixon songs have a little, always a little bit risque, but this one, especially in, um, uh, I don't think anybody knew knew what the hell they were talking about back then. Pro- yeah. Probably not. Um, I mean, the, the the cool thing we're so much it, smarter now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the cool thing about it is it's the it's not that this doesn't happen elsewhere, but this this song and maybe the last song on the album, it's the band sounds like they're just having the best time of their lives they playing do. this. Yeah, they you know, do. and Sam, Sam Cooke does this. She shouts out to a few of them. Uh, you know that old kind of shout out thing. Yeah, I think like says, Bob Wills used to do. It. I think he says, "Play it, Billy," or something like that. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. uh, it's just a fun song. Well, but you know, I want to see that. I would love to see all these old guys, old weathered guys, looking at that sixteen year old doing his animal <laughs> noises on the organ. I would love to see them just cracking up, saying, "Come on, kid, you can." Big that's asshole. good. Yeah. Give me, oh. give me a. Ostrich noise now. (laughs) (laughs) And then we come back to another Sam Cooke original. I I really like this song. Oh, Uh, yeah. Laughing and Clowning. Stand in the doorway Watching all the girls go through And this is another another blues song. It is. Pretty much just a blues um, well, it's got it's got that structure, but it's also it's a Sam Cooke song. You know, yeah. he's got that part in the middle where he, mm, he hums, does that hum he does, you know. Yeah. Um, it's got if you listen to it closely. There, Hal Blaine is doing some really weird stuff on the drums on this one. Just I can't really explain what he's doing, but he, he's the way that he's playing the drums. And I, I can't tell if he's like hitting a piece of paper or something. But there's just some unusual percussion sounds on this, so give it a listen when you uh, well, next time you listen. And the other thing you got to do is really soak up the lyrics because they're pretty they're pretty great. You know, yeah. there's this one yeah. bit in the middle where he talks about being the life of the party. Seems he goes, being the life of the party seems to be my role. I keep trying to hide my feelings, keep trying to hide my soul. I mean, that's that's pretty that's pretty great. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if another singer got grabbed on to that life of the party stuff. <laughs> Sound a little bit like uh, Tracks of My Tears mm-hmm. um, And then some more blues uh, Troubled Blues Number nine Someday No someday Darling I won't be another charles brown song and uh, again sam does that kind of hum slowly in the beginning of it so while it's a blues song it's he's putting his stamp all over it you know yeah it's got kind of a a gospel it's got that and before i get the alarm set hit on me um it's got that wordless vocal by cook just that whole first uh, (laughs) the whole whole first uh stanza it's just it's um it's just him doing his his Sam Cooke vocalizing his mouth and, noises. and 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 uh, again to bring up Billy Billy Preston, it's got a fantastic organ solo. Oh in yeah, the too. it's yeah. so great. <laughs> yeah, but there's another thing on this song that makes it. As long as we're talking about the musicians on it, that there's that this song could almost be a dirge if it weren't for I'm not sure who's playing the guitar part on this. I can't tell, but there's this sort of galloping upstroke guitar part that's going on throughout the whole back of the thing that I think just makes this song interesting. You know, the song's a pretty slow song, but the guitar part's, you know, playing pretty rapidly, and I think that's what makes this song. Well, now we're up to 10, and we got a Sam Cooke number again. You gotta move. Move on Oh, you got to move If you keep on um, I am pretty sure this is not a Sam Cooke song. <laughs> so, so JM, Sam Cooke would do things like taking that song, um, 
you know, gotcha. that he did with the soul stirrers and rework it and make it into something else. And, and, and one of the things, just speaking to Charles Brown again, even before this album, you know, the song, bring it on home to me, which is an amazing Sam cook song. Uh, it's just a reworking of a Charles, Charles Brown single called, I want to go home. I mean, it's, it's essentially the same song, but Sam cook came in and tweaked it here, tweaked it there, moved the arrangements a little bit. So maybe that's the deal with this song, Yeah. but, um, so, I mean, eventually everybody in the world covered, bring it on home. Yeah. Yeah. So, Great, uh, dude. yeah. Anyway, but he also, he also gave him credit for nobody knows the trouble I've seen, which, you know, just he arranged it. He just gets credit for the arrangement of that song. Yeah, yeah and I think that's I think it's the same thing with this one because it is a different arrangement. But it's some guy named Traditional same. got credit for nobody knows the trouble. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I, Sam Cooke doesn't strike me as someone that would take credit for a song he didn't write. I'll bet you a dollar. All, All right, right. ladies deal. and gentlemen, tune in next week to find out who gets the dollar. <laughs> All right. Hopefully, less controversial is. Fool's Paradise. Staying out all night Living in a fool's paradise the last Charles Brown song on the album, he didn't write it, but he recorded it, and it's by far my favorite song on this album. It is a great song. It, it is. A great song. It's probably my second favorite next to uh, Lost and Looking. But yes, Great, great song. It's just got a sense of urgency to it that is, uh, yeah. you know, this is a, he's he makes you believe that this is a guy that's been out all night drinking and yep. gambling, and he's just yep. he's just dying to get redeemed. He doesn't want to lose everything because of his sins, you know. Um, yeah, where in the world did he and get you- the life experience to cover it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing I like about this song, he he never goes over the top with this one. You know, it's kind of like what you're saying there. Tony's like, yeah, it's the late at night. So, yeah, let's not do – he could easily go into theatrics or something with this. And one of the things that I'll say is I don't think that Sam Cooke could make it today um, because he just – say on this particular song, he just stays so subtle. And he, and he gets into the nuance of the song. Um, you know, and today you look at – all the TV shows like um, American Idol and The Voice and all that, and his, you know, theatrics and histrionics are prized much more than subtlety and nuance. I don't know if I agree with that, and maybe, maybe I don't. Maybe I sort of half agree with it because you look like you look at someone like Leon Bridges, who was obviously his first album was greatly influenced by Sam Cooke. I think he'd be the first to admit that. Um, but maybe Leon Bridges isn't able to do what he's able to do if Sam Cooke hadn't already been there. So if there hadn't been a Sam Cooke, maybe Sam Cooke wouldn't have made it now. I don't know. Yeah, I right. don't know. And finally, this is a song. I can't remember who else covered this song, but I think I've heard it before. Shake, Rattle, and Roll. This song is so much fun, and it's a great way. I I find it highly offensive that it assumes that it's a woman's job to get in the kitchen. Um, I'd like to go on record as a uh, man who's very much against this song and finds everybody who likes it highly offensive. (laughs) Is there a better way to close this album out, though? I mean, you know, we talked about when it starts off with Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, which is very sort of melancholy when it starts, although it ends with hope. And then you end with this, which is just a, just a party, you know? Yeah. It's just a party. It's a for great everyone song. except that poor woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think she's having a blast in the kid. He just wants her to hear her banging on the pots and pans. He doesn't really want her to next. Well, she can bang on them after she does the dishes. Uh, I would, I would say that I think that, you know, as we're talking about the way it starts and the way it ends, it's again that kind of that cohesive whole that this is, and as you said earlier when we started talking about this, this is an album that's meant to be listened from beginning to end, um, oh, yeah. and just absorbed that way. And it does take the listener on kind of on a journey through these various kind of peaks and valleys, um, but ends again on. You know, I think because of who Sam Cooke was and his background of being a soul singer and having that gospel influence, um, I, I I think he's always going to 
be tr- try to be uplifting at some point because I think that's just who he is and what he was trying to do with his music. You know, that's his music is that way. Um, so it's it's kind of a perfect way to end the album. It is. It's it's. I'm so excited we did this album and that I was forced to listen to it uh, 15 <laughs> times and uh, forced to um, find out about that crazy high school where. But, I can't. I hope everybody will go look that up on Wikipedia. Distinguished well, uh, alumni from uh, Wendell Phillips High School. I, I think you I, said well. Well, I was just gonna say. I think one of the sad sort of um, footnotes to Sam Cooke is because of when he died and how he died. Uh, he's been a bit marginalized in popular culture. I mean, people know him. You know his music. You've heard it. You know, I think I think this like the soundtrack of Animal House is is filled with Sam Cooke songs, um, and 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 everything. But uh, I, you, you know, how you, when we were talking about the zombies, and you said you went, you talked to people if they if you said the word zombie, if they know what they were, but then you'd sing the song, they go, yeah. I wonder if you wouldn't have the same almost reaction to people if you said, do you know who Sam Cooke is? They might go, yeah, but if you if you said name a song, they wouldn't know it until you told it to them. Which well, is really- I don't I don't have to wonder about that because I did do that, and it's exactly what you said. Uh, his songs are well known; people immediately recognize his songs. But uh, they they don't recognize who he is and hit and yeah. the huge role he played in American music. Not like they do uh, uh, Stevie Wonder or uh, Ray Charles and uh, Brown. Yeah, I I don't know I don't know what explains that, but it is a it is a tragedy. Well, Tony, would you tell us a little bit about that sad story the night he died? Just just because I think people will be wondering the situation. So he um, he had gone out to dinner with um, some people. Uh, I, I don't remember their relationship. They were involved in his management or something, but they were friends. And um, and uh, he wanted to stay. They were they were wanting to go home, and he was wanting to stay out. And he goes up to the bar and he flashes out a big wad of bills. And his friend comes up and tells him not to do that. And he's Sam Cook feels invincible. He says no. He ends up uh, meeting a young lady at the bar and taking her to a motel. Um, He goes into the bathroom um, and comes out and uh, and she's gone and she has taken his pants um, with his wallet. And so uh, she goes to a payphone, calls the police, says she was kidnapped um, and uh, and he's looking for her. He bursts into the um, motel um, office where they were staying, uh, convinced that the lady was there with the motel manager. The motel manager says she isn't. And when he bursts in, she shoots him, I believe, three times and kills him. Um, And as I said earlier, the unfortunate thing was he was wearing only a blazer and, and one sock. So he was burst into the thing with no pants on. And uh, and that's how he was he was shot, which is really tragic. There's a lot of speculation over this. Um, it, she was a prostitute. Um, there's speculation as to whether or not she and the motel manager were in, were in some sort of cahoots, whether her her uh, pimp was involved in it. Um, but it was a it was a huge tragedy. It was a loss not only to his family, obviously, but to the to the music, uh, you know, loving public. Um, Case in point, as I said earlier, it's likely that there would have been significantly more albums like this out there by him. He, uh, re- you know, the last album that was released, um, uh, that was recorded right before he died, is considered um, on par with this in terms of its um, its appeal to people. Um, and it's got the song A Change Is Gonna Come, which is considered his masterpiece and it's hard to argue that it's not his masterpiece it's an amazing it's an amazing, amazing song. song it's a civil rights uh anthem. Right, anthem well that was an amazing man and an amazing album and everybody had a whole lot to say about it but before we go for the evening one of the most important things about this podcast is trying to keep it relevant for the young people tony what do you have for the kids tonight? Well, Doug, I'm going to do something I did uh, for the Bowie podcast, which is I'm not going to recommend an album, but I am going to recommend a movie and a book. Um, currently on Netflix, there's a documentary about Sam Cooke called The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. 
it goes into some detail towards the end about his death and some of the um, theories surrounding that. But prior to that, the first 50 minutes or so is a really amazing, uh, truncated, obviously, but amazing uh, history of his life and his impact on on American music and the civil rights movement. It's really compelling, um, well, well worth checking out. Um, and it's called, like I said, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. And the other thing I would recommend, if you can get a copy of it, Peter Goralnik, who wrote um, the amazing two-part biography of Elvis called Last Train to Memphis and Careless Love, um, wrote a biography on Sam Cooke called Dream Boogie, The Triumph of Sam Cooke. It's huge. It's 900 plus pages, but it's worth reading. It's it's an amazing read, and you will learn about what a great guy this was. And just an amazing figure in American um, popular culture. Um, I highly recommend that book. Amazing biography. It's long, but very easy to read. All right, that's it for tonight's show, where we were looking at Sam Cook's Night Beat. Next week, we're going to be looking at one of the more important albums that was released in the 1980s, the early part of the 1980s, London Calling by The Clash. Be sure and look us up on Spotify or your favorite podcast platform, such as iHeartRadio or Amazon. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. You can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Please leave us a note and suggest some albums to us that you'd like for us to take a look at. And if you know of anyone who likes music or the album format, be sure and let them know about our podcast. We'd love to spread the word. And we want to hear from you. What's the first album that you bought that was not influenced by your friends or what was popular at the time? What's the first album that you discovered solely on your own? For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, a change is going to come. Tony, you're a married man. Have you ever tried to uh, suggest that your wife get in that kitchen and make those pots and pans shake, rattle, and roll? <laughs> now, I've eaten her cooking before. I would never uh, want her to go in there. Whoa! And do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is uh, Tony Sagal's last uh, podcast as a married man. <laughs> We'll be, we'll be doing a lot of blues albums. No, I, I kid, I kid. Um, she's a fine cook. Well, I just want to go on record as saying if she's not a fine cook, it doesn't matter because she's a self-actualized human being that's just as important as any man in the world. Uh, <laughs> why, why are you laughing, Jam? That's not something to laugh about. James free. He doesn't have to worry about all that crap. <laughs> it's a big role reverse, re reversal for me. <laughs> JM forever. I've been the one that can say whatever I want and JM couldn't, but now it's exact opposite. <laughs>